0: One of the things through the years that has become um, a, a pet peeve is the taking of powerful words and making them impotent by sentimentalizing them. I'd rather somebody take a good word and blatantly misuse it than to take a good word and think they are using it correctly and really. Um, taking the power out of the word by using it in a sentimental way. For instance, there was a shepherd of the jury who was here at Treebeard's restaurant. I like the term shepherd. Uh, They're the ones who lead the jurors around. And they come over here to eat at Treebeard's at our restaurant here at the cathedral occasionally. And one of the shepherds of the jurors was overheard to say at the door of the great hall, to his sheep that he was shepherding, as soon as we finish, we will conjugate here at the door.") <laughs> he could have misused the word "conjugal. But um, he did misuse the word congregate, and I find that kind of mistake um, honest and real. I've made innumerable of those. Anybody who uh, speaks publicly as much as I do um, misuses words continually just because of the uh, overwhelming abundance, and percentage-wise you're going to miss a few. But to take a word that has power and to... Rob it of its power by sentimentalizing the word um, is a pet peeve of mine. I spoke about that when we began working on what was then known as the Guild Hall, which has now been renamed the Great Hall, um, because somebody referred to this as the Fellowship Hall. It's one of those words that, for me and my own experience and vocabulary, was not a very good word. Fellowship. Whatever is done as fellowship is probably a place I don't want to be. Let's get together for some fellowship. I grew up in a small town and attended, uh, with some high degree of irregularity, the Methodist church. And they had a fellowship hall. Now, <clears throat> part of the reason I went to the priesthood was to figure out what went on in those fellowship halls. And I've stayed in the priesthood in, fi- in spite of finding out what happens in those fellowship halls, a current word that's being used, that when I hear somebody use it in a sentimental romantic way, sends chills up my spine because it's such a powerful good word that has deep origins in terms of the psycho-spiritual journey of the human soul, it's the word blessing. I hear it all the time it's like the word sharing let's share together and we shared the word blessing somebody says oh that was such a blessing to me you were such a blessing to me i was blessed by this and so forth the word blessing now sounds uh, like a sort of warm fuzzy garment that somebody has placed around your shoulders when indeed the word blessing in its roots and i did a little etymological work uh, not that i didn't know but i want to be sure i'm accurate comes from the old english root b-l-o-e-d-s-i-o-n or sometimes s-i-a-n blodsian means to make holy or sacred by some sacrifice it originally meant to mark with blood thus b-l-o-e-d anywhere there's a blessing there's blood so when somebody says in kind of a blithe spirituality that's not rooted to anything significant. It was such a blessing to me. It generally means the opposite. It generally means that I was delivered from the reality. For a blessing is like a birth. Anytime there's birth, there's blood. And anytime there's a blessing, something has been bloodied. Uh, There was a tradition in the a church uh, of which i was a part and that was when in those days young men were ordained priests the older priests would line up after the recessional hymn when the young priest had been ordained a priest and they were kind of like the non-commissioned officers after a newly commissioned second lieutenant they would line up and kneel down and say Father, will you bless me? And so the young priest would go along with the old priests who were kneeling before him and give a priestly blessing to these mentors who had lined up to receive the blessing. Father, bless me. And it was the first sacramental blessing of the young priest, for only priests are able to bless in God's name. Um, The mentor and rector who was responsible for me at that time Peter Sturdivant uh, was a, a man rich with experience, high in idealism, and carried with it the residual opposite, which is cynicism, and said to me, you know, don't forget now, when you get out of the recessional, all those guys are going to be lined up, kneeling down, asking you to bless them. Don't forget to do that. He said, what you ought to do is hit them in the mouth. I said what do you mean he said well, that's what blessing really means I never understood what he was talking about you know to hit him in the mouth that's what blessing really means it's not unlike the Zen master who teaches these students who come in some kind of romantic expectation of hearing pearls of wisdom and drip like honey from a cone from the lips of the master and the first thing he does is hit him up the side of the head. There was a tradition Bishop Corral still uses that I don't know about in the Roman Catholic Church. There was a tradition in the Episcopal Church, Anglicanism, and, and the Catholic faith. At confirmation, when one came to receive the laying on of hands from the bishop, he would indeed lay on hands but also give a slap across the face. There is a residual of that. Bishop Corral is the only bishop I know who still does that, but some bishops were uh, forthright in their slapping the new compromise in the face. It's a blessing. Now what I'm proposing today is to say that what most of us in the center of our consciousness want from life, we say, is to be blessed. And under that rubric that ought to be stitched across the forefront of every human being's consciousness of watching what you pray for because you're liable to get it, if you want God to bless you, be careful because he may just do that. As a matter of fact, once again under the general rubric, rubric and aegis of just journeying through life, you will be blessed. And you probably will look for that blessing in the wrong place and not realized where the blessing came because you probably will have repressed or rejected the blessing and keep it in the dark underground of your own unconscious and only in the later years of wisdom will we hope and pray that you will have some aha experience when you say god was in that place and i knew him not would you like to have a blessing as a matter of fact, when you see a priest rise at the holy table at the end of the service to give his priestly blessing, you ought to run for the corner and hide. You do know that the priestly blessing that is given at the end of the service has with it a manual gesture, a gesticulation gesture. To the congregation who have, who have conjugated in that place. <laughs> it's not unlike there is deep within the liturgy and within the rite and within the ritual and within the symbol, there are secret messages that nobody quite hears until he or she has lived enough life. Uh, to gain the wisdom to begin to hear with the inner ear and not just the outer ear. You, you know of the gesticulation or the manual gesture by the priest at the blessing at the end of the service, what it's about. It's the same thing we say as priests to the couple as they're kneeling before the priest to receive the priestly blessing at the sacrament of holy matrimony here's a young couple immature usually in experience high in expectation have come before the dearly beloved to commit themselves for better for worse they really mishear that they think it's for better or worse and when given the choice i'll take better <clears throat> it's for better for worse for richer for poor not usually hearing the subtlety of what's being called for in that commitment until death us do part of course at that stage of ego development death is not a possibility (laughs) and the priest before he puts his hands upon them to give them the touch of death makes the sign of the cross, but he says that you're committing yourself to the way of life, which is the way of the cross. How romantic. Let's live our lives the way of the cross. Um, Passion, in that sense, has a very clear understanding. I refer you to the passion narrative that we rehearse in Holy Week. If you want to know what the way of life is, it's the way of the cross. And so the priest says that the way of life you're embarking upon is the way of the cross. And then he makes that gesture. So any time that the priest gets up to bless you, you know, run for the corner. Hide under the pew. Because something radical is going to happen. The blessing is the creation of the mark of blood. Now, when somebody says to you, are you over here, or you even find uh, coming to your own lips a sense of what a blessing that was, or you've been just a blessing to me, or what a blessing your word was, it has come to me in the opposite. That's what happens, unfortunately, to good, solid words is that the ego will not be able to stand the real power of those words, and so it becomes to me in its opposite. Like the word myth, of course, which means untrue. Or the word fantasy from fantasia in the Greek, which means the ability to see something. It's a fantasy, it's a myth. Or the word comfort, which is from the Latin cum forte. Uh, Cumforte means to come with strength. Uh, comfort is what Jesus gave the man who'd been lying by the pool of Pasada for 38 years waiting for somebody else to come put him in the water. Jesus came to him with comfortable words. He said, get up! That's comfort, to come with strength. Cumforte, And we now think comfort is something that you put on yourself On a cold night. A comforter. When indeed, uh, real comfort comes as a kick in the pants. Blessing. Oh, you were such a blessing to me. Bless me, Father. Oh, we are so blessed. If you just substitute the word blood, bloody, or bloodied, then you'll get a little closer to what a religion of experience is about, rather than that sentimentalism and the pietistic platitude that seems to be more marketable than reality of what religion's all about. When you know, we begin to talk in this way, we ought to return to our roots, which is the Holy Scripture, Try to find some example of what we're talking about in the experience of our people, which really is uh, what is referred to as an archetypal story, which is the sort of blueprint of human experience, uh, which pop up in our symbols and our myths and our rituals and our rites. And we look uh, first, I think, of course, to talk about blessing this morning and what a blessing this morning is going to be for you. Uh, we go directly to the story of Jacob and Esau. One of the great archetypal stories of the reality of human existence rather than the pietistic platitudes usually assigned uh, to Holy Scripture. Scripture does, as I wrote on the bulletin last week, Scripture does at least this for us. It bridges the gaps between uh, what we know and what we don't know or can't know bridges the gaps between that which is humanly possible versus that which is impossible for the human. And this is one of those sacred stories. You remember the story. You ought to know the story. I, I don't mean ought in the sense of some superior figure of authority pointing a long bony finger down at you saying you ought to know the story. The fact of the matter is you know the story because it's within you. I'm not sure you remember the details of the story but you have lived it. It is the story about you. The reason it survives and will outlive it's author is because it's about life. Uh, If you remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's a way I can always start getting into the stories. I have trouble remembering biblical stories and chronology because I am of want to move quickly to fantasy rather than uh, to that portion of the brain that commits things to memory, sequence, and chronology. I'm more likely to be thinking in images rather than in chronology. But be that as it may, one of the ways I've been able to get in touch with uh, such great sacred stories is by memorizing. First it comes Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph, and then Moses. Um, Is everybody with me? (laughs) If I I do go too quickly, um, just, just hold up your hand. It's Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. Good. Okay. Jacob and Esau, therefore, must be the sons of Abraham, Isaac. Must be the sons of Isaac. See how this works? You may want to bring a pencil and paper next time because we're doing biblical study and you might want to get at the subtleties of this. Do you remember Isaac? was a son of Abraham and Sarah, and uh, God had said to Abraham, I want to give you a blessing. (laughs) Matter of fact, I'm going to give you a blessing. Now, in order to inherit this blessing, you've got to give up everything you have. You've got to leave where you are and never go back. And then you've got to wander around forever. And you've got to learn how to lie and cheat and steal in the outward world in order to enter the inward world of the kingdom of God. I want to make a covenant with you. A covenant, of course, means a contract that cannot be broken by your lying, cheating, and stealing. And um, I'll never lie to you. I'll tell you the truth. I will not deceive you, though I will lead you in subtle ways. God is not devious, said Einstein, just subtle. (laughs) God is such a blessing to his people. So he said, on the basis of this covenant, I'll establish an eternal relationship. I will be your God, you will be my people, and out of that will come a land, a people and a blessing. Abraham should have run back to the Ur of the Chaldees and hid in the corner because he was about to get a blessing. He got God's blessing. And as you know from the story, he had to leave everything and go out into the unknown, leaving the house and land of his father Uh, We could spend a semester, as I have, on the implications of that story in terms of good developmental psychology. You've got to leave the land of your father if you're going to come into the kingdom of God. So he leaves, and great and wonderful intrigue. But one of the parts of the promise, if you remember, was I'll give you a blessing, um, and I'll give you a land, which is the promised land, and I'll give you a people. And so here was, at the end of his life, Abraham was barren, he uh, was not able to have children, so they tried to deceive God, trick God, cheat, lie, steal, and so he had a child by somebody else. You remember that part of the story? Does anybody remember that child's name? Do you read? Did you read uh, Melville when he wrote Moby Dick? Do you know, do you understand why he chose that name, Ishmael? Yeah. Well, uh, that was a result of when human beings take God's history into their own hands and are not obedient to the call, but you see God leads in such subtle ways, sometimes we have to take our own lives into our own hands inevitably when we do that we make a mess of things, but evidently the subtlety is, you might want to write this down evidently the subtlety is that the way we grow up is by messing up it's eminently quotable the subtlety of God is I'm not going to give you any leadership I'm going to put you on your own and which, the minute you take history into your own hands we tend to mess it up and then God says see and it's through the messing up that we are blessed it's through the messing up that we're blessed that is the blessing I think I know the secret now It's in the woundedness, it's in the bloodiness, it's in the messing up, it's in the hard, narrow way that we understand God's blessing. Because out of that messing up, we grow up. There seems to be no other way. Abraham and Sarah finally waited on God and God's own good time. He brought them a child, Isaac. So that the blessing, which had been a hell of a blessing, so to speak, was finally fulfilled in this people. Now there will be a people. And the people of God, the Hebrew people, were blessed to be a blessing. Have you looked at the history of the blessed people? Um, (laughs) You're such a blessing to me what a blessing your word is to me. When somebody says to me, what a blessing your word is to me, I feel like I have said nothing. Blessed to be a blessing. So they finally got the people. This was this boy, Isaac. And then Isaac was taken up to be sacrificed. God called him to take the only remnant of this covenant up on the hill, up on the mountain, to sacrifice, and uh, God is is infamous for his ability to call our bluff about whether we want to be a part of this blessing. So he takes the remnant of the covenant and says, how much do you want the blessing? It is like the teacher who brought the naive student to the Ganges River and said, "You want to know God? Yes, I want to know God more than anything. Do you want to know God? Yes." And he plunged him into the water and he held him for a minute, he pulled him up, said, "Do you want to know God?" He said, "Yes, I want to know God." He plunged him down for two minutes, he pulled him up, and he was blued by the lack of oxygen. There was a the color of the water itself, and he said do you want to know God and with only one breath he said yes and he plunged him back until he was only having a half a breath and he said do you want God more than breath yes it's um, for most of us pedestrians who sort of stroll through the ritual of a religious life um, and then live outside the church and the ritual such wounded uh, gnarled difficult existences and we feel like if we were more religious that these things wouldn't happen to us and we split off our religion from our real experience and we are driven farther into inferiority because we feel like that we haven't been religious and that's why God has visited us with such curses when indeed the opposite is true and that is that What's being lived out ritually is not real life. It's only pointing to real life, and that the real religious experience is in the woundedness. That's where one experiences God. What happens here, of course, is the ritualizing of the life cycle and the reality of living. So what happened to Isaac? Isaac had two sons by Rebecca, if you remember, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Even in the womb they were fighting, so we're told. Now what they were fighting for was dominance, and as you know, the whole idea of genealogy in the Old Testament is very important because the leadership of the tribe and the people is passed on from the father to the firstborn son and so there was great fighting even in the womb for the dominance but Esau was born first Jacob second Esau was born and he was a hairy man he was the color of red and Jacob was a smooth man and the etymology of that word really from the Hebrew means cheater And if you remember, since Esau was first born, he had the birthright and would then get his father's blessing in order to become a leader of a great nation of the people blessed to be a blessing uh, to the people. Well, Esau was a, a, a red man, and that red is a symbol of instinct. And he lived primarily by instinct. He was a hunter-gatherer. He was a man who was born for the outdoors and one who was to go on an outward journey by instinct. And you know the color red also is the same color we use for the devil, which is what the church has done with instincts. We say the instincts are bad, and so we've made them like that Dionysian God who was half animal, half man cloven hoofs, and so we've made the instincts the devil and so we have devalued and then we've paid a great cost for that because we are people of instinct who ought to own our instincts if you heard me lecture on this before I believe our instincts will lead us to God because our sexual instincts our desire for hunger and our desire for safety and rest uh, all eventually lead us to God Holy matrimony is the blessing of our instinct. The Holy Eucharist is the blessing of our lives. And so our instincts lead us to the blessing. So we have a wonderful split here between the outer world and the inner world because Jacob was a man of the tents. That is to say, he lived on the inside. He lived with his mother, Rebecca. He had a huge, incredible mother complex but he learned a lot from his mother in the tent, evidently, and what he learned was the wily, beguiling ways of the feminine. And what she taught him was, the time is coming, I'm skipping quickly over the birthright where she stole, Esau the hairy man, the red man, sold his birthright for his instinct. He was hungry, and on this pottage that uh, Jacob was wily enough to give him because he was famished, He gave him that, and he sold his birthright. So he got the birthright, and when it came time for the blessing at the birthright, Isaac was at his old age, and he was blind. Anytime you see that, listen carefully. And so Rebekah, the mother, tells Jacob how it is that he can get the blessing. And so he dresses in the clothes of his brother Esau, and he puts um, the... Of animals on his own arms because Esau was a hairy man, and he goes in and he tricks his father and he gets the blessing. But old Isaac is not as dumb and as blind as you might think because when the outer eyes are blinded, it may be a symbol that you're able to see things from the soul. And so when Jacob comes in to get the blessing, acting as he is Esau using his senses and his instinct, old blind Isaac says, hmm, this is my son. I can smell his smell. Now, as Frederick Buechner says so powerfully, even amidst the mendacity, he could smell the holiness of the calling of God. What Rebecca knew that Isaac couldn't know or any of the dumb men that are around could ever figure out was that you don't just follow the linear rule. You follow your heart. And she knew Esau could not lead this nation, that it was Jacob who was born to do this. And so she broke the linear outward rule. This is what mother does for us. This is mother's great gift is that she teaches us that things are not always linear things are not straight lines things are not rules as ruled by our rulers the feminine is able to see things that are not seen quite so clearly it's like mother nature in nature there are no straight lines i said this the other night at a meeting i was speaking and said in nature there are no straight lines all the straight lines are drawn by architects and artists and they are the artifacts of the human being but in nature there are no straight lines a physician who was in the audience said to me "Uh, that must be true because he said in medicine if on an x-ray you see a straight line it's a sign of pathology so the lineage was broken by the wisdom of the feminine side who said sometimes you have to follow a higher calling of a blessing than the lower calling of the rule Jacob gets his father's blessing what a blessing <laughs> and he's off and running in a journey and Rebecca the loving mother Knows that in order to keep the story alive you have to know the deeper meaning of events but she also knows that in the inner world she has done a holy thing for which she must pay in the outer world and Rebecca understands the true nature of nurture when she does as Mary did give her son up because she was never to see him again. Jacob fled, as you know. He had that wonderful dream that said there's more going on here than meets the eye. What's happening here and that great Jacob's ladder dream is that God and you are in communion, that what happens in the heavenly realm does happen on earth, but it happens in the blessings of life and so we saw that he was about something that was greater than even he himself or rebecca had realized he was to become israel and he said god was in this place and i did not know it and god is in every place that there's a blessing but every time there's a blessing there's blood because where there's blessing there's birth and where there's birth there's blood And so he goes off, and he goes through these wonderful machinations in order to try to unite with his own femininity, and I refer you to the story for his relationships with Leah and Rachel and his father Laban, and how he sees that the trickery that was given to him as a smooth man is sort of the arrows in his quill for being what God calls him to be, and he finally, after 14 years of labor, he is able to finally be released from his father-in-law and to make his reunion in his own journey and return home. But before he does that, as you know, he left and took all of his tribe, his two wives and all of his children, particularly his favorite son, because he wasn't able to have children by his favorite wife, Rachel, so he could only have children by Leah until finally he was able, not unlike the story of his father and mother. He was able to have a child by her, and that was always his favorite child. The child he had with Rebecca, and that was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's a whole other wonderful story, the Joseph story. And out of that union and out of all that work and machination in that strange land, away from the home of his father, not unlike Abraham, his grandfather, he discovered who he was in order to return home, not unlike Moses who had to labor out in the desert to discover who he was to return home. And so he returns home, and before he can go home for reunion with Esau and with God, he is at the Jabbok, and he sends everybody on, and he knows that there is one more peace before he can go home, and that is that he has to get not just the blessing of his father, but the blessing of God. And so in the night of his dream and the reality of his life he struggles and he fights and wrestles all night long with this stranger who is the stranger is the stranger God is the stranger an angel is the stranger uh, Jacob's own dark side or what is the difference and so he asked after struggling and fighting all night long he asked a stranger or God or his own inner self I must now have my own blessing watch out he finally gets the blessing he is renamed Israel because he is to become the nation and yet he was deeply almost mortally wounded and he was wounded as the scripture says in such a wonderful euphemism, he was wounded in the hollow of his thigh. Would you like to have a blessing? We are blessed in our woundedness. We are not blessed in our gifts. We are not blessed in our achievements. We are not blessed in our resources. We are blessed always in our woundedness the wound is the blessing and I don't know why we don't understand that except I think I understand is because it hurts so much and it takes us so much to the edge of that we dread most in life and that is non-being if you want to get close to God you're going to get as close as you can to non- being it's only in abandonment that you can understand abundance it's only in near death that you can understand life. It's only in the mistake and the chaos that you understand something of the truth and order. I don't know why it's this way. I don't think it's deceitful, but it sure as the world is subtle. And so if you don't learn anything else, learn to not use the word blessing lightly because it means woundedness. God blessed his son on the cross. That's the way of life. I've been called to another place. (laughs) But before I leave, I would like to give you a priestly blessing. Lock the doors. I hope... never again in your life will you take with any degree of sentimentalized romanticized religion a blessing because I'm blessing the woundedness that you have in your own life that is your making you will walk through the valley of shadow of death but you need not fear evil because there's purpose in that because you've been blessed And the way of the cross is the way of life. There is no other way. And may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you.